well. It is a delight to be back here with you again. And perhaps when Nick and the team asked me to preach this morning, they might have been hoping that I would choose a nice, happy, optimistic, positive, upbeat kind of passage to give you all a lift and uh, an encouragement. But I didn't choose a passage like that. In fact, the passage I'm going to preach from this morning is kind of a fairly grim passage, to be honest, a fairly sober passage, fairly serious one. And maybe this is just kind of a bit Australian of me to choose a passage like this. Australians, we tend to be a slightly more laid back, cynical, kind of assume the worst kind of people, perhaps more than, um, than you guys are. Um, and in, in America, if you see a guy walking down the street in a suit and tie, you probably assume he's going to a job interview or something. Uh, in Australia, we see someone walking down the street in a suit and a tie, we assume he's about to appear in court. So this is a kind of Australian passage, a passage with grim warnings and realism, but there is also some rich encouragement in this passage and challenge and a real surprise that I hope you'll be challenged by as we go along. The passage is in Hebrews chapter three, beginning at verse seven, and we'll read it together now. In Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Can you see there in that last verse, verse two that I just read, how Paul sees, oh, sorry, Paul, the writer of the Hebrews sees that the story of Israel and the journey of Israel is very much like the Christian journey. That, and that's why Israel can serve as such a good example and object lesson about the Christian life. It's like this right through the book of Hebrews, in fact, right through the New Testament, that the experience of Israel is often held up as an example and an encouragement and a warning to us in our Christian journey because good news came to them just like it's come to us. What are we gonna do with that good news? 
Israel's journey and the Christian walk have a lot in common when you think about it. While they were in slavery in Egypt, Israel heard the good news of rescue and redemption. A great prophet and figure rose up, Moses, to lead them out of Egypt. God rescued them through Moses to take them to his promised land, a land of rest from their enemies, a land flowing with milk and honey. And their challenge, having been rescued from Egypt and out of slavery, was to walk and travel and journey to that promised land, promising, uh, trusting in the promise of God that he would get them to that wonderful destination with their eyes fixed on the promise before them. And that's not a bad description of Christianity, is it, when you think about it? The Christian gospel is the proclamation of the good news of God's salvation and redemption and rescue, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin and to death. And not through Moses, but through an infinitely greater saviour, through Jesus Christ. A promise of rescue and redemption and of a heavenly eternal kingdom and rest that waits for us who put our trust in Jesus Christ. A promised place in that kingdom. And just like Israel's journey, the Christian too is on a journey, a pilgrimage through this barren land until we reach the verge of Jordan. Like us, like them, we have to keep walking each day with our eyes on that eternal kingdom. And that's what Christianity essentially is like. It's a promise of rescue, a promise of redemption from sin and death and of a life eternal with God in his kingdom through the work of Jesus Christ. And we walk every day as pilgrims towards that eternal rest. Now the passage today is about what that pilgrimage is like and some of the dangers and threats of that journey. But I've got to say, just as I, before we get into the meat of that, there are some of you here who perhaps aren't sure whether you're on that journey yet or not. Maybe you haven't even quite started on that journey to the heavenly kingdom. Perhaps some of you today are still in Egypt, as it were, or maybe not even sure exactly where you are. Perhaps you're not sure what the promise of God is in Jesus Christ and why you should trust it. Perhaps you're not even really sure there is an eternal destination waiting for us. If that's you today, then don't miss the opportunity to talk to someone about that today. Come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to hear your story about where you're up to and what you're thinking. And in a crowd this size, in a room like this, there's lots of people at lots of different points on this journey. And if you've got questions and you want to ask questions, then ask them today and get them answered. Come and talk to me, talk to Pastor Nick, talk to the person sitting next to you. But our Bible passage today is addressed to people who are already on that journey. And in comparing them, the Christian journey with Israel's journey, the message is pretty simple, don't be like Israel. They are lousy pilgrims. They made a good start. They left Egypt with Moses, but they faltered and fell on the way. I mean, look at verse 16. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt with Moses? And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. They failed to reach the promised land that generation because they rebelled against God and provoked him by their behavior. 
Though he'd blessed them repeatedly and saved them repeatedly and provided for them repeatedly, they grumbled and complained and rebelled against him. And the author is saying, look and learn. Do not fall into the same trap they did. The warning still stands. The warning that God made to them back in the Old Testament is the same warning I want to tell you. Don't fall into their trap. Don't harden your hearts and rebel against God as they did. Because you too, if you do, will fall. You should fear, he says, lest any of you seem to have failed to enter that rest. I told you it was a happy passage, didn't I? And some of you may be feeling a bit anxious, perhaps, at this point. Maybe because you know that your Christian life and your Christian journey is a bit weak and wobbly and beleaguered. Maybe you're anxious that you're like Israel and you won't get there. Maybe you see in Israel just the kind of person you are. And maybe you're anxious that this warning will, will catch you out. As we'll see as we go through this passage, a little bit of anxiety is not a bad thing. The passage does warn us to fear and to take the warning seriously. But don't be too anxious. There's some encouragement and some good news coming. So stick with me. But there are some others of you who may be anxious for a different reason, maybe theologically anxious. Surely God is sovereign and powerful. Surely God will look after his people and make sure that we get to his eternal destination. Isn't that what the New Testament says in lots of places? That God will shield and guard his people until they reach the eternal inheritance. Won't he make sure that the saints persevere to the end? Should we really be worried, honestly worried, that we might fall like Israel in the desert? Some of you may have that anxiety. The writer to the Hebrews doesn't seem to share it though. I mean, he doesn't say Israel were faithless and rebellious in the wilderness and they fell and didn't enter the rest, but you don't have to worry because that couldn't possibly happen to you. He doesn't say that, does he? In fact, he says exactly the opposite. He says, you make sure that that doesn't happen to you. He assumes that the warning of Psalm 95, that's the verse he quotes there in verses 7 to 11, that that warning is still present, that it's still today, and the Holy Spirit is still saying these words to his readers. And in case they missed it, he says it very clearly in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you who has an evil, unbelieving heart. Or verse, four, uh, verse one of chapter four, this, therefore, while the promise still stands, let us fear, lest any of us fall short. He doesn't seem to be very interested, in other words, in the theoretical problem of whether genuinely regenerate, regenerate Christians can theoretically fall away. He just wants to warn them to make sure they don't. Now, friends, we can be confident and the Bible promises this in many places, that God will indeed protect and guard his people. He promises that. He will preserve and protect us on our journey. And the Lord knows we certainly would have no hope of getting there if that were not the case. But the means by which he preserves and protects and keeps his people is to warn them in his word through passages like this. 
The warnings are how he preserves us, or one way that he preserves us. It's a little bit like dads or mums uh, protecting their kids, say from a hot stove. If you're a parent and you wanna make sure your kids don't touch the stove when it's on, what do you do? Well, one option would be to hover around the stove 24 hours a day, making sure that under no circumstances the child can ever get near the stove to touch it. That would be one option. Another option, perhaps a little less tiresome and a little less, um, a little more time-saving, would be to warn and teach and discipline your child not to go near the stove, to warn them, to discipline them, perhaps with consequences if they start to get too near. The warning is how you protect your child from the heat of the stove. It's how good parents discipline and teach their children, and it's a bit like this with God. He disciplines us and warns us in his word to protect us. One of the key ways he preserves us is to warn us of the dangers of going astray. So what is the danger? What is the heart of the problem? What is the real issue that we face as pilgrims on that journey? Well, it's there in verses 12 and 13. He says, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, so long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Can you see our essential problem? It's the same as Israel's. We share with Israel a chronic disposition to hardness of heart, a tendency for our hearts to become callous and cold and insensitive and impervious to what God is saying to hear the great word of God, the promise of God, and not be moved by it. To meet it not with faith and trust and joy and obedience, but to meet it with coldness and indifference and unbelief and rebellion. That's the disease, that's the problem. Cardiosclerosis, I guess you could call it, hardening of the heart. That's the disease. If that's the disease, what would the symptoms be? Well, they're different for different people, as many diseases are. But some of the common symptoms that I've seen of hardness of heart in people I know are things like these. A loss of appetite for the message of the Bible, for example. Just not being very interested anymore in reading it or discussing it or hearing it preached. Finding everything else much more stimulating and interesting and worthy of our time and attention. Being much more excited about the latest episode that's gonna drop on Netflix than to tremble before the word of the true and living God and attend to it and listen to it. Sometimes you see a creeping complacency, a kind of unengaged, self-satisfied kind of boredom with the word. Listening to the word, perhaps even listening to it here this morning in church, but with a kind of, oh yeah, ho-hum, heard this before, kind of attitude. An attitude that assumes there's not much to learn here not much to challenge me here. In some people, actually, it can be quite different. In some people, hardness of heart comes out as not being unengaged and uninterested, but in being very interested in a critical, harsh, argumentative way. A person who sits in judgment all the time over the word, always quibbling, always arguing, always being sure that they know the answer, always finding a reason to keep the word just at arm's length because I know what it's really about. Do you see any symptoms like this from time to time in your life? I'd be astonished if you didn't. 
because the author here is saying that a tendency to hardness of heart is part of the human condition. It's what Israel suffered from and it's what we still suffer from as Christians. What causes it? What's the underlying cause of this awful disease, this hard heartening disease? Are there lifestyle factors that contribute to this condition? Well, there are. Look in verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's the deceitfulness of sin, says the author, that causes the hardening of the heart. In the end, it's not our intellectual quibbles with the word or our misunderstandings of the word that harden us to God's promises and his word. It's our sinful choices. And we know this to be true in our lives, don't we? We start doing something that we shouldn't really be doing and all of a sudden reading the Bible becomes less attractive or church becomes less convenient and I start skipping more often. We're all like this. We want to run our own lives. That's our, that's our basic impulse. We want to be the kings and captains of our own little tin pot kingdom. That's what we're like as people. And the last thing we want is the word of God crashing through and telling us to repent and to live his way. We constantly fall for the lie that sin tells us that we'll be better off if we rebel against God, if we ignore him, if we keep him at a distance, if we don't listen to what he's saying. Life will be more fun, more satisfying, more safe. And so we stupidly and wickedly go along. We're deceived and we rebel. But of course, it's all deceitful. That's the point of sin. It's a con, it's a trick. It's a trick that convinces us to turn our backs on God and harden us against him. And then we find ourselves with the kind of symptoms that I talked about above. A disregard of God, a callous indifference to what he's saying to us. We ignore his word and go our way. This is the problem that we share with Israel. The real and deceptive presence of sin in our lives and the tendency that has to produce in us a hardness of heart. Now, it's true that we're different from Israel in all sorts of ways as Christians. We have blessings beyond number that they didn't have. We have a vastly superior high priest and prophet and king. We have a better promise. We have a more glorious kingdom and so on. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. But we still have a heart that is prone to wander, as that song we sang so nicely put it. A heart that is prone to harden and become callous through the deceitful presence of sin. And the Christian life is like this. Surely this passage is warning us of this. The Christian life is not a happy cakewalk. It's not a stroll through a rose-petaled garden with a light breeze refreshing our souls. The Christian life has its dangers and threats. It's a difficult journey because it's dogged and threatened at every point by the deceitfulness of our sinful choices and tendencies that tend to harden our hearts. And the author of Hebrews in this passage couldn't be clearer about that, which is why he is warning us about that. Is there no hope then? Is there anything we can do about this perennial problem, problem that besets us all? Well, praise God, there is. And here's where we find a bit of a surprise in this passage. Because what would you expect the author to say is the solution or the antidote to hardness of heart and the deceitfulness of sin? 
I expect we might say that we should just read our Bibles more and that would be a great thing to do. I hope you do read your Bibles and let me encourage you, read your Bibles more. But he doesn't say that. You might expect him to say, get to church more often and listen to more sermons. That would be a great thing too. Amen. But he's not saying that either. It's pray, pray more, or maybe sing songs more. He doesn't say either of those things, although they're both wonderful things. What does he say instead? What he says instead is a magnificent gift that God gives us to strengthen and support and encourage one another not to be deceived by sin. And we often miss it and we often overlook it, but it's there, right there again in verses 12 and 13. Did you notice it as we read it? He firstly says that we should look out for each other. That's what the word take care means in verse 12. It means to watch, to watch out, to keep an eye out, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart. He wants his readers to be on the lookout for each other, to be actively concerned and watchful for one another's health. You see, we don't face this threat of hard-heartedness on our own, and that's God's wonderful gift. He gives us each other. We're pilgrims together through this difficult journey. And so we're to watch out for each other, to watch for signs that sin is starting to harden and make our hearts callous, to see to it as a community that none of us develop the kind of evil, unbelieving heart that this passage is warning us about. And notice, he's not addressing here the pastors or the leaders or the elders, although that's their role as well. He's addressing the brothers, the brothers and sisters. He's addressing all of the Christians he's writing to. Because that's what it means to belong to a Christian fellowship or a Christian community like this congregation. To be part of this pilgrim community, this community that's walking its way towards the eternal kingdom that God has promised, is to be a community that looks out for each other, that is intimately and deeply concerned for one another's spiritual welfare, for the heart health of all of us, of the person sitting next to you, or the person sitting in front of you, or the person you're in Bible study group with on a Wednesday night. And in verse 13, he goes on to say how that concern and that care for one another should chiefly be expressed. See there in verse 13? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The key way we express our mutual concern in make sure that no one develops a hard heart is to exhort or encourage one another every day, says the author. Mutual encouragement and exhortation is the preventative medicine, says the author. The preventative medicine that prevents us from developing sclerosis of the heart. Now the word exhort there in verse 13, it's a very common New Testament word. Sometimes it's translated encourage. It's the same word. It can mean to encourage or comfort or exhort or urge or appeal to. It's that kind, it's got a kind of a range as a word. And that's what he's saying we should be doing for one another. To speak to one another words of encouragement and comfort and also urging and exhortation and appeal, stronger words, to keep encouraging and urging and helping one another, to open our mouths and speak to each other. 
And this is his antidote to hardness of heart, a mutual concern for one another that's expressed in mutual exhortation of one another. And what's the content of that exhortation? Well, the key to that is noticing that what the author is telling them, his readers to do, is the very thing that he is doing with them. What's the author been doing? In this whole section, he's been exhorting his readers to keep their eyes on Jesus and not to become hard-hearted and fall back and fall away from him. In fact, the whole letter of Hebrews is one long exhortation, as it describes itself in chapter 13, doing precisely that. The content of the author of Hebrews' exhortation is quite simply to keep fixing your eyes on Jesus, the great priest and high priest and apostle of our confession, the one who sacrificed his life for us, the one who reigns at God's right hand, who's purified us from sin. Keep your eyes on him and keep trusting in him, says the author to the Hebrews, and that's what he wants his readers to do with each other. As I'm exhorting you, so brothers, you exhort one another every day to keep on fixing their eyes on Christ. And notice that it is an everyday exhortation. It's supposed to happen in the midst of life, in the midst of everyday life. And this is why it's so powerful as an antidote to the hardening effects of sin. It takes the word that is addressed to everybody, the word of the letter to the Hebrews or the word you're hearing today as we preach it, and it zeroes that word in on the personal lives and circumstances of each person every day. It's it's in this way, in fact, that mutual exhortation of this kind achieves things and does things that sermons can never do. It brings the word into the everyday circumstance of each person. It encourages each person in the particular struggles and challenges that they're engaged in. It multiplies the reach of the word into the daily granular existence of every one of us. Now, I'm pretty much in favor of sermons. I mean, I'm doing one now. I, I really think sermons are very important. I think they're vital. I think the church falls without the preaching of the word of God. But sermons aren't the only form of word ministry in the Christian community. That's what this passage is teaching us. In fact, if we force sermons and preaching to bear the load of everything that the word should do in our community, we're trying to make the sermon do too much. The New Testament is insistent about this important ministry of every Christian to one another, to exhort and encourage and remind and admonish to instruct and answer and help and support one another in every way possible to keep walking along the road towards the heavenly kingdom, to resist the hardening effects of sin in our lives. Because it's the Christian who's next to me, who's my brother and sister, who knows me and knows the struggle I'm going through today, who can speak that word to me and encourage me in it, who can give me a smack about the head when I need that, and tell me that I'm being stupid or stubborn or rebellious, who can lift me up and comfort me when I need that, when I'm down and struggling. Someone who stands next to me and is walking next to me as a fellow pilgrim, making sure that my heart doesn't get hardened by the constant deceitful effects of sin in our world and in our lives. 
who brings the word to me in the midst of the daily challenge. The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote very movingly about this aspect of Christian community. He put it like this. Bonhoeffer said, God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the testimony of brothers and sisters, in human mouths. Therefore, the Christian needs Christians who speak to him the word of God. He needs them again and again when he becomes uncertain and fails because from himself he cannot find help without cheating himself of the truth. He needs the brother, he needs the sister as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word to him. He needs his brother solely for the sake of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of the brother. The one is uncertain, the other is certain. That's a beautiful sentence, isn't it? The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of the brother. The one is uncertain, the other is certain. Therefore, the goal of all Christian community is clear, to encounter each other as bringers of the message of salvation. This is the wonderful gift God has given us to prevent the hardening of our hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. It's one another speaking and preaching and reminding and encouraging one another with the word as a normal part of being a Christian and as part of this Christian community. That the word of God should not only be on the lips of preachers, but each in our own way, each in our own humble personal way, on one another's lips, encouraging and reminding each other to put our trust in the promise of God. Well, I told you that it was gonna be a sober and somewhat serious message today, but also a message with a wonderful encouragement. I hope you heard the sober part, the seriousness of the warning. Did you hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today? Don't harden your heart to the message of Christ. Don't be like Israel. Don't make a start on the Christian journey only to fall as they did. Don't think you're immune from sclerosis of the heart. We all have it. And don't dismiss the danger. Don't let sin deceive you or fool you that you're not in danger or that you're impervious to the effects of sin. Hear the warning, but also hear the encouragement that God has not left us alone in this journey because he knows us very well in our weakness and he provides for us in all sorts of ways and in particular in this passage, he provides us with each other to watch out and take care of each other, not just as pastors and elders, but that's the privilege and responsibility of us all, to maintain and grow an active loving concern for one another and for the spiritual health of those around you. And that being expressed in particular through bringing the word of God to each other in whatever way we can, to exhort and encourage and remind each other. That's what it really means to be a church, to be a community of Christ. And one of the joys of coming back here to Old North Church over many years now, I think it's around 15 years I've been visiting back and forward to this church, is to see the way that you've grown to become this kind of community. Where so many people here at Old North understand that the role of encouragement and discipling and helping other people grow as, become Christians and grow as Christians is not just the job of the pastors. It's the job of all of us as a community of Christ and to see that people being trained and equipped and encouraged to engage in that ministry to each other and seeing that grow and develop and spread here through the congregation has been a joy as I've come back year after year. 
Brothers and sisters, do this more and more. Do it in your small groups and in the ministry you have to each other in those settings. Do it in your homes and families and in your personal relationships. In every circumstance, every day, exhort one another to keep trusting in Christ and put your trust in the God who has saved us and redeemed us and who will get us to that destination by the power of his word and spirit, a word and spirit that works through that everyday exhortation that we bring to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the promise of the gospel, that through Jesus we can come to know you and have a place in your eternal kingdom, that we can be forgiven for all our sins and rebellion, and by his word and spirit become your people, walking on the journey towards that eternal kingdom with you walking with us and empowering and protecting us. And thank you that one of the ways that you protect us is through each other, through the care and love and concern and exhortation of the Christian community. Father, help, help us, we pray, to treasure that gift and to put it into practice. Please protect us from hardness of heart and please help us, Father, one another, each with one another, to exhort and encourage and share your word with each other so that we might not be hardened. We thank you so much for this reminder today, Father, and for the challenge and encouragement you've brought to us through your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.